0: You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the second season of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I'm really excited to be kicking the season off speaking with Maya Markovich. Maya is the head of product at Denton's Next Law Lab. And like every episode, we cover quite a lot today. But the core theme is all around innovation. And the three broad categories we dig into are number one, the three pillars of Next Law Labs and how innovation can actually help to take the robot out of the lawyer. The second, how do you catalyze innovation? What that means and really the importance of, as an individual, becoming that connective tissue across the firm or your business. And lastly, the impact of legal technology, the impact legal tech can have on access to justice. I wanted to thank Maya again for taking the time and also to give a special thanks to Isabella Galliano, who's actually featured later in the season. for introducing me to Maya in the first place so without further ado let's kick right into it hello and welcome to this episode of the fringe legal podcast this is your host ab and today i am joined by maya markovich who is the director of product at next law lab maya has had quite an exciting background in getting to where she is today and there's so many things we want to dig into so without further ado maya welcome Thank you so much, Ab. It's a
1: real pleasure. I'm a big fan of Fringe Legal. (laughs) Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, so I guess
0: a good place to start would be, if you wouldn't mind sort of just detailing a little bit, a short story into how you got to where you are today and what does being a director of product at NextLaw Labs mean?
1: Yeah, sure. So I've had kind of a number of different threads of my career path. And really, I'm, I'm lucky to be in a place where I'm culminating seemingly disparate experiences. So I have an academic background in behavioral science and organizational psychology. That initially kind of put me on the path of change management consulting. And then I enrolled in law school after a bit of that to kind of continue developing my professional and people skills and an industry where I felt like I could have a a broader social impact. So I practiced for several years and I really was intrigued by the use of technology and was often kind of pushed towards that way as as the younger member of many teams. And so, you know, I, I eventually made the shift over to the legal tech vendor side and I worked in some product management and product marketing roles, targeting different areas of that business and practice of law, and now I'm lucky to be at Next Law Labs where I can kind of pull all of those threads together.
0: That's really cool, and it's always wonderful talking to a fellow lawyer and a fellow scientist. What a what a cool mix! <laughs> and I'm sure both of these things will play a part in our conversation as we go on. So, for those that don't know what Next Law Lab is, and it was founded in 2015, what does Next Law Lab do exactly? And you know, what's the I suppose the affiliation, the connection with Dentons as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that there's, there's a bit to unpack for sure. So Denton's recognized, I think early on, that the legal profession was really undergoing some significant disruption driven by things like, you know, globalization, technology, generational shift. And really, kind of most imminently, client needs and expectations and demands. So yeah, NextLaw Labs was founded back in 2015 to really sort of help shape and drive this disruption and embrace the opportunity to be kind of a force for the transformation of this you know, immense $600 billion profession that's been just so traditionally resistant to change. Yeah. The NextLaw Labs mission was really initially to reinvent the business and practice of law via technology. And since then, it's grown into, you know, five distinct operating units. I'm happy to talk a little bit more about those and talk a little bit also, if you'd like, about, you know, how we have evolved the roles and the vision over the last three and a half years.
0: Yeah, I think probably a good place to get the conversation started is around the evolution of it, right? Because I know when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, briefly, we, we sort of... Found ourselves talking about how not just Next Law Lab, but even your title, your role, and the profession itself has evolved uh, since 2015. And I think I note down a little tidbit that you mentioned. Um, please, someone fact-checked us. <laughs> you know, when NextLaw Lab was first founded, there were around 80 legal tech startups versus you know well over a thousand now, for sure. And obviously, the level of investment has skyrocketed. And I think last year in legal tech alone, uh, there was more than a billion invested.
1: Yeah, so definitely. I mean, so, you know, when we first launched Snackfall Labs, we envisioned going to market in three ways, developing proprietary tools for Denton, co-developing solutions with Denton's clients, and also an investment track where we, you know, provide funding and expertise to these legal tech startups that have compelling solutions. So that's kind of where my original title came from. We initially envisioned that I'd be working on designing and delivering solutions that we would be developing. Obviously, you know, we hit the ground running, we spent some significant time you know, via sort of a loose design approach to identify some critical pain points that were being experienced by Denton's attorneys and their clients. That was kind of our shortlist to immediately address them and we kind of looked towards how best to address them. We delivered solutions on all three fronts, but we, we pretty soon realized that our impact could just be that much greater if we focused on the last one. You know, for instance, just one of our startups now has about 10, 10 to 12 developers and they're just working on one solution. But we were getting outreach from so many from the get-go within Dentons that we really began to focus more and more on working with early-stage products, both within and outside the, the Nexlaw Ventures portfolio. And so we invested in 10 early-stage legal tech startups that addressed some of those pain points. So yeah, my title is still Head of Product, but it's just come to encompass so much more over the last several years. I can be vetting you know, potential investments and startup acceleration, you know, brainstorming new solutions with Dentons Partners, talking to Denton's clients about their challenges just trying to stay on top of as you said the rapidly expanding and evolving legal tech landscape.
0: Yeah, and I and I suppose you know being connected to the biggest law firm in the world certainly has advantages for these 10 startups and more anyone that applies and sort of gets in part of this because you you obviously get not just the expertise from the lawyers and you know people like yourself but also being able to I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know this, being able to sort of test the ideas or at least run the ideas by various different offices around the world, right? To see if there's, if there are viable things to go after.
1: Totally. That's exactly right. So specifically with the portfolio companies, I mean, there's no guarantee that Dentons will, will become a client, but we do help to accelerate. And that's much of my day-to-day is spent working with portfolio companies. And again, the companies that fit a pain point within Dentons but are not yet in our portfolio, to accelerate them and to really get the subject matter expertise from their target market. And it's it's a great value add. And it's obviously, if, if Dentons decides to deploy and implement them, you know that the largest law firm in the world becoming a customer helps evaluation of the startup. And <laughs> Denton's attorneys get the opportunity to really shape and refine those products for their own optimal utility. And everyone's happy. It's a win 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 <laughs> situation.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, obviously that the 10 startups were early stage companies. Is that kind of the primary, I suppose, the primary market that Next Law Labs is going after in terms of investment? Or are you sort of looking at, Maybe sort of slightly beyond early stage. Companies, so just sort of companies in growth stages as well.
1: Uh, no, we so far it has turned out that we have been focusing largely on early stage uh, legal tech companies because most of the time we see where that's really, honestly, the most compelling and interesting solutions to the the problems that are being surfaced within Denton. Yeah, there were, there were eighty legal tech startups when we were founded. As you mentioned, it was a little easier to keep track then, <laughs> and a lot more now. Yeah.
0: So does that mean that you're getting a lot of applications, a lot of, a lot of interest, right? I imagine as the, not just the number of startups grows, but also the amount of money that's available for startups through not just you guys, but others, does that, does that have a big impact yeah. on the applications as well?
1: Oh, I, I would say so. I mean, our, our pipeline has been steady since launching. We ourselves have received over 300 pitches from 30 plus countries. And yeah, with with that actually, it's very cool because within that critical mass of data, we've, we've recently been diving into it and seeing what kind of trends and data points we can pull out and extrapolate to the larger legal tech marketplace.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm sure when you do re- release that report, uh, it'll be an uh, interesting read, no doubt. So yeah, <laughs> I certainly look forward to reading it. So you said there were three tracks, right? So there was the investment arm, which we were just talking about, the other was co-developing, and then the last one was building products as well. And you mentioned you know the one of the reasons that sort of Denton saw this opportunity and next door lab saw this opportunity was around sort of disruption and the globalization of technology and so on. And a thing that gets thrown about quite a lot is around how technology is linked to innovation in some way as someone who practiced as well what do you think is driving the disruption and you know what's your thoughts as far as a leading question what are your thoughts on innovation
1: <laughs> well, it's clearly not always about technology. I mean, you know, we work on the principle that operationalizing innovation requires people, process, and sometimes, but not always, technology. I mean, yeah, an example, really, of how this plays out is that one of our other Next law business units, Next Law in-house solutions, is really the tip of the spear when it comes to providing Denton's clients with solutions that are focused on the business of law within their own legal departments. So many customers really need help with things like strategic planning, modernizing their legal departments, better managing their outside firms or their procurement process or talent management. You know, they've they've got issues across the board that aren't legal services related and may or may not require technology to improve or solve. So NexSlot in-house solutions help support those. And really the key there, I think, is to consider the full picture, you know, because our examples have shown... That while, you know, what might be initially seen as a technology issue or a gap really can't be successfully addressed without fully considering and understanding the underlying people or process issues. And then, you know, NextLaw In-House Solutions loops us in when there are specific questions around technology. For example, you know, helping create a legal tech roadmap for a client's legal department, or identifying potential platforms for automating NDA review or deploying smart contracts for their vendors, managing their panel of outside counsel, that kind of stuff. I mean, I think all of that can probably be characterized as innovation in the legal field, even though, you know, if we were talking about different fintech or ad tech, you know, it would just be considered normal business (laughs) work. But as we know, you know, the legal industry has lagged behind most other industries with the adoption of technology and finding new ways to do things.
0: Yeah, and I think it's think so all right. I think those innovation often gets lumped in alongside a whole slew of things going on in a law firm. And it's sometimes important to actually have a holistic view of things and say, look, yes, we might need to innovate. And yes, we might need to bring in technology to assist with certain things and certain processes. But it needs to be something that's considered in light of, okay, do we actually understand what problem it is that we're trying to solve, right? What are we actually trying to do? Is this something that's maybe a people issue or a process issue rather than an efficiency issue or something along those lines where technology obviously has a greater level of impact than otherwise?
1: Oh, yes. I was just smiling because I was thinking of Margaret Hagen's research into kind of how law firms kind of attempt to innovate and some some of the struggles that they have in kind of embedding it. And it is, and one of them is they jump to the first good idea Um, (laughs) and they don't really take, (laughs) and I totally understand as a former lawyer, I, and, you know, as a psychologist, I understand (laughs) all of those impetus, but, you know, at the same time, taking a step back and kind of allowing more ideas to flow always, it's never a waste of time, certainly. (laughs) <laughs> That's so right. And I think it, you know, I think you
0: mentioned it, you know, it comes to sort of people process and then sometimes technology. And I think it's an important thing that, especially in the law firm environment, it's really what you're trying to do is make it easier for the end user. And oftentimes when we talk about that, it's about, you know, the lawyers, but really it could be any knowledge worker, you know, what is it that they're looking to do and it comes down to people just want to be able to do more of the high value work, right? They want to be able to provide a greater value, a better service to their clients and enable their clients to do the same for their clients and so on. And that's really where technology can assist because you're trying to just get rid of all of the mundane, all of the sort of mundane, but necessary, I should say, work. And it could be things like timekeeping. It could be something else completely different. And, you know, reviewing your documents or whatever it might be. But I think that that's really the core of what technology can assist with.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I completely agree with that. There's, you know, there's a lot of hype, obviously, around the robots for coming all for all our jobs. And on the other end of the spectrum, lawyers are really prone to this kind of professional exceptionalism they're so specialized and their work is so bespoke that really no technology could ever replace them. I actually think both extremes have at least a grain of truth to them. I don't think there's any debate that the practice of law often includes this layer, you know, of high frequency repetitive tasks. Those are the tasks that often lead to burnout, you know, and so they're going to be increasingly automated by technology. But, you know, so much of what lawyers do involve these high level people skills that really can never be automated. We really believe that innovation can take the robot out of the lawyer yeah. by kind of identifying and minimizing those repetitive tasks and designing better, more intuitive workflows that are going to free them up. I mean, at its core, lawyering is, is creative problem solving, it requires a solid foundation of knowledge. You know, you need to know about process players and issues to be addressed. None of that can be entirely automated of course it can be streamlined you know or refined but today a lot of that busy work that doesn't significantly improve the quality of those legal services can can really be relegated to technology and and as we've seen by the explosion of the legal tech landscape it's just more every day and i i really truly believe that lawyers you know if they embrace it and they are you know actually uniquely positioned to drive innovation they're going to be able to focus on this higher value work strategic and creative thinking and these issues you know that demand insight and emotional intelligence and i think tech will play a huge part you know in this transformation and give lawyers more control over and, and more satisfaction in their work, not less. I think it's an unprecedented opportunity. I'm optimistic.
0: <laughs> and I think rightly so, right? And I, I love the phrase, taking the robot out of the lawyer, because I think that's so apt. And I think I know you've written about this in the past around sort of modernizing the profession. And it's definitely something I agree with, where you know, essentially, law has been really quite static for a long, long time. And there needs to be a better way To be able to improve various things, and that's you know that includes sort of building and flexibility means making things more efficient and adding in transparency so as we sort of think about all of those sort of micro skills and areas what are some of the skills that future lawyers should be mindful of right whether those are people who are in law school now or just joining the profession or thinking about it for the future? What what do you think is important for them to be aware of and focus on and for law firms as well, and others that are are going to hire Mm -hmm. them?
1: Totally. Yes. So this is one of our favorite subjects. <laughs> you know, at Law Labs, you know, we've been doing a lot of thinking, reading, writing, speaking on the skills really needed for future lawyers. And kind of as a complement to that, how to really reshape legal education to enable more graduates who can jump in and start really substantively contributing sooner and leapfrog some of that drudgery that's just, you know, often defines those early attorney years. You know, I think in addition to basic legal knowledge that we were all taught in law school, and the things we're hearing much more of now, like fundamental understanding of business needs, you know, some some level of comfort with data analytics and statistics, project management skills, that kind of thing. I think there's also this key area of personal effectiveness skills, and it was just so well and nicely laid out on the Legal Executive Institute's Delta model of lawyer competence. And I really think what will differentiate and enable lawyers to succeed in this evolving legal market is EQ, you know, or emotional intelligence, the ability yeah. to empathize, collaborate, communicate with diverse teams. And one thing that's actually been very exciting for us recently is Denton's recently announced the launch of Next Talent, which is this global initiative to support EQ in, in their employees as really the key differentiator of legal services in the future, where all of these other you know, legal knowledge and skills will be table stakes. And so it, it's really great to see How these fold in together with kind of the innovation imperative and complement each other so it's a very exciting time
0: (laughs) yeah for sure and i think as you were saying that you know and listing out all of the i suppose the core skills right having the basic legal knowledge which is a given and always a known being able to identify business needs learning about data analytics about statistics all of these things and i wonder if all of those things have been because I think they've always been there in some way and I wonder in the last let's say five years or so uh, they've just become more prominent right because there has been an explosion of data scientists and the importance of data science and understanding statistics and how they impact the business and so on and definitely in the last couple of years, I've been hearing a lot more about EQ and I couldn't agree with you more. It's just being empathetic. And you know, ultimately, this is a people profession, which is why I think the technology is a good augmentator, if that's a word, a good more augmentation to your skill set. But certainly it's something that, that needs to be tied in with being able to empathize with people when you're speaking to them and so telling you their problems, whether it's a business problem or a personal one. Do you think that is something that and I suppose as a behavioral scientist, as a psychologist, and someone who's into change management, you know, how do you think that's going to play a part with those that are already in a law firm, right? So those that maybe qualified 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, how do they improve on those skills? Because I think the newer lawyers maybe will be able to pick that up because they're taught that in law school, hopefully, and and otherwise. How do those that are within the profession learn those skills and improve on them?
1: I think that's a great question. And actually just teeing off of one thing you said towards the end there was that I actually think that as law schools become more focused on kind of these these skills, these skill sets, that they will actually attract an additional group of people interested in gaining a law degree and not necessarily to use it to practice law. But I think that it will attract folks that have perhaps have some of these skills or this bent already. So kind of way far upstream, but then for, you know, the other end of the spectrum for lawyers that are already, you know, pretty established in their careers, I think, you know, we see, you know, we, Denton's is 10,000 attorneys and we work, you know, all over the world. And of course there are cultural differences and kind of regional and, and within practice and sectors and all of these different kind of components that lead to kind of a greater or lesser degree of comfort level or openness to trying to do things in a, in, you know, augmenting skill sets, I actually, I'm happy to report that in my estimation, there's quite a bit of people out there that are fairly well established. And it might be because they're worried about the, you know, they're acutely feeling the pressure that they're hearing directly from clients to innovate, to change, to do things differently, to be more of a business partner. But they're the ones reaching out to us. Asking us for, for support. And, you know, EQ is totally learnable. It's not something that's innate. So it's a matter of just, you know, seeking out those opportunities and, and having the time to do it, which obviously, as you get further along in your career, it feels like everyone has less and less time. But also, it's, you know, it's an imperative and, and a lot of people that I work with, you know, yes. recognize that right off the bat.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it's so It's interesting that you talked about all of these different people who have law degrees but may not necessarily want to practice law because one of the other things that's happening quite a lot is people are joining the profession with a lot more cross-functional skills, right? So people that have... sort of trained in or have seeked out knowledge about design thinking about how to better do legal service delivery and other things around that engineers actually and things of that nature right that may not have been the most obvious fit in within the legal profession in the past and they're now joining the profession which actually is a great thing because it changes and it helps the profession evolve into its next stage where you are basically improving the delivery of law and actually importantly and i know this is something that you're quite close to it means that there's better awareness for actually making law more approachable for the masses right improving the access to justice which is you know especially not just for small firms or charities and so on, which I think traditionally has been the role, but even big law is playing a large part in that and really helping to solve big,
1: real human problems. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, another one of my favorite subjects. (laughs) So, you know, clearly legal tech is having, you know, a big impacts in firms, legal departments, governments, et cetera, but I, I strongly believe that these advances really can and should be leveraged to improve the, the human condition as a whole. You know, I mean, I think that for, by by streamlining a lot of these workflows, I do think that legal tech can have a positive impact on the access to justice crisis, you know, where there's a pretty well-known statistic that over 80% of people who need an attorney in just in this country can't afford one. So, you know, I mean, legal tech isn't a magic bullet. You know, again, you've got to go back to those people and processes and design solutions for the folks that they're going to be made to help. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you know, stuck with more technology out there that nobody uses and it's just not going to move the needle on access to justice or really you know and what's dear to my heart catalyzing innovation wherever you see it and there is a a great need for it you know in the access to justice world
0: yeah uh, very much so talk a bit more about catalyzing innovation and not just because i love saying those those two words together (laughs) (laughs) tell me a bit more about what that means to you and how do you how do you approach that
1: Oh, so, yeah. It's, uh, it's. I mean, my life is different every day. I can tell you there, there are no two days alike I'm in Nexar Labs. But, you know, our mission is, I mean, we love the word cataly- catalyzing innovation too, because our mission really is to catalyze and cultivate, design, drive, embed innovation within Dentons and its clients anywhere that, you know, it can take hold, that it's, you know, deemed to be necessary or, you know, a value add which is in my opinion most places right i mean the most critical components to legal innovation are you know collaboration coming up with the good ideas through this collaboration and really managing the process of of embedding and and the change management process to really drive that adoption of innovation i mean the hardest part of my job is is change you know driving that consistently through a huge firm and with all of the different variables is is exhausting and invigorating, you know, at the same time. But, you know, innovation is really a, a big part of Denton's DNA. Mm-hmm. And so there's just a lot going on across the firm. And so a big part of kind of our catalyzing innovation is at Nexol Labs is, is connecting those dots. And surfacing the innovative projects that are happening across all these offices all over the world to harness and scale them wherever possible and avoid duplication of effort. So catalyzing innovation can take a lot of different forms, but it's, you know, it's all, we're all kind of striving towards the same end, you know, which is just this ultimately reinventing the, the practice and business of law for the 21st century and beyond
0: yeah and i mean there's quite a few things to unpack in there actually but first i guess how do you or how did you specifically train yourself to notice the patterns right how did you learn to sort of connect the dots and i mean it probably helps that you have Data from like 200 offices and 10,000 lawyers, when you're able to see a lot more, maybe a lot more connections. But how did you start learning that skill? And I'm asking that not for just my own sort of selfish reasons, but I think as others in law firms, how do they start seeing these opportunities across their own practices?
1: Well, I mean, you know, we at the very beginning, we spent a lot of time really doing substantive interviews and outreach to pretty much anybody that would talk to us about what their pain points were. And as we've evolved those same resources, you know, have have, you know, obviously are familiar with Next Law and all of its entities now and kind of the different approaches and solutions that can be leveraged for internally and for their clients. And having, you know, at this connective tissue of innovation where, you know, it's not somebody who just handles innovation over here. People are are very much understanding that we're here to support them in their effort. And so they're, you know, excited and willing and, and it's great to hear about their, you know, their ideas. And sometimes they're, you know, fairly fleshed out solutions. And then someone else will reach out to me from Singapore and say, and I'll say, Oh, you know, I just heard this was, you know, something that the knowledge management team was working on in Berlin. Let me, you know, figure out if there's a way for us to, leverage what's already been done or, you know, layer onto it so that it can be more of a global solution. And again, that can take many forms. Sometimes it's collaborative internal effort. Sometimes it's a bespoke solution for a particular client that then can be scaled. It can take, it's really very difficult to generalize, but spotting it has definitely takes some time and training. But now I'm, you know, I I see it everywhere I look.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I guess it's one of those sort of biases, right? The cognitive biases that once you start recognizing something, it's hard not to spot it everywhere. Yes, it's, (laughs) it's repeating itself totally and so it sounds like the overall i suppose a pattern if i can call it that is that when you do notice these things that you're testing these ideas or approaches in a small group setting and sort of then letting it expand organically or inorganically from there right so you you see someone who has a good idea you let them run with it and then as you said you know the people from singapore berlin or wherever might come to you say oh that looks like it's working so And that seems like a good approach for other law firms and they don't have to be, you know, as big as you guys, 10,000 lawyers and so on. But even if you have a 100 lawyers, or 100 people, it might make sense to allow small individuals to run with the ideas, the good ideas and see if, if it becomes sticky and then develop from there.
1: Oh, yes. That's the thing. I mean, there's, there's plenty of that type of work stream going on. There's also people coming to us saying like, look, I, you know, my client has just asked for this can we help them, you know, or, you know, I really wish there was a pro- a solution for this thing I do every day. That's just taking way too much of my time and then we have to write it off. And so, you know, to the extent and we have a, absolutely stellar knowledge management team across the globe within Dentons and so I support them in many cases when it's a regional effort but to the extent anything can potentially be a global effort that's really where NexFile Labs can step in even from the the idea germination point and help kind of shepherd that through um, its process all the way through operationalization. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know a lot of your
0: knowledge management teams actually around the world and mm-hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. They're, they're all fantastic actually. And so one, one of the, and I want to start wrapping up being conscious of your time as well. One of the other things I just want to touch upon was you mentioned a big part of your job is now sort of managing the change and helping mm-hmm. ideas and projects sort of to become embedded. How do you do that? You know, as as someone who has I suppose, a background in in behavioral science and someone who has a specialization in change management, and I think a lot of firms really struggle with this, right? Regardless of the size Mm -hmm. of change and uh, whether it's going to be something that's seismic or not, change is generally a difficult thing. What are some of the things that have helped you sort of manage that in a successful way?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because I think that I mean there's a recognition at least on on the projects that I'm working on. There's a recognition that that is a, a significant portion of the kind of the operationalization of of a really kind of embedding it as standard workflow, whatever whatever the change might be. And sometimes the smallest things can can be the most seismic. <laughs> so um, it's not necessarily like an entirely new system. Sometimes it's just make sure to check here before you do this or, you know, or, you know, reach out to anyway. Yeah. So one thing that I found is really interesting. And in speaking with other kind of similarly situated folks at different firms is that a challenge I think overall is recognizing that it is as important as it is. And I, I mean, I, I saw that in my change management consulting days that people would really wonder why they were sending in kind of an advanced team to do all of the process mapping and the interviews with everybody from, you know, the CEO down to the mailroom to understand everyone that's going to be impacted and kind of identify the key stakeholders. One of the best things that we do is identify early on an internal champion. And that can be one person in a person, a leadership position, or it can be kind of the person who ultimately or the persona who's going to be sort of the target, the ultimate power user of whatever the solution might be. Having an internal champion, I think, is is absolutely critical. And it's actually part of our standard Nexol Labs engagement process, both internally and externally. Mm. Another thing is, you know, making sure that there are the identif- the milestones are, you know, it's all pretty basic. Again, it seems revolutionary when it comes to the legal industry, but it's really pretty, it's pretty standard and no- nothing, you know, nothing, no lightning bolts of, you know... <laughs> suggestion here but you know the the idea of having milestones and you know and you know regular check-ins and you know a project tracker and you know an established success metrics i mean that's another critical part that i think you know thinking through that at the get go really sets folks up for a much more successful experience and you know they don't always succeed there are plenty of failures out there. And, uh, you know, we, you know, our whole point is, you know, if it's going to fail, let's fail quickly and know why we failed and move on from it and, and learn from it. And so I think, you know, encouraging that mindset, I would say, is probably another key, key component yeah. of the whole change management app. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, being able to sort of, as you said, none of these things are really revolutionary, but they are important nonetheless. And I think they are being accepted more and more across legal and, you know, just basically treating it like a project management study or exercise helps, you know, so having those milestones, having a criteria for whatever success means and being able to pivot if it doesn't work out because it's okay. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things for lawyers that you don't really want Mm -hmm. to think of think as failures, right? It's maybe easier to think of them as an experiment if that helps you. So you're trying to prove or disprove a hypothesis and either way you win and you sort of pivot, move on and apply the learnings from there. And yeah, I think that the, some of the components that you mentioned, I think they're so important and sometimes, you know, having that champion and actually i was having a discussion about this earlier today having those champions or influencers or whatever you want to call them it's so important regardless of what you're doing it's so important in managing any change and often people think that that needs to be top down or bottom up and sometimes you just have to look at your peers because they might be the best influencer or the best persona of an influencer, and you just want to get them on board, right? You just want to be able to get those people on board to to evangelize whatever yes. change you're trying to get to spread across the organization. And, you
1: know, totally, and invested in the in the process and the outcome. Definitely, I would say the other, you know, the the other thing that mentioned, I often kind of gloss over this, but I think it's probably ground zero, especially for law firms, is the ability, you know, really to have the space to do that experimentation with their time. And one thing that Denton's has recently rolled out, it's, you know, it's going region by region, but in the U S specifically has recently rolled out the innovation hour in which, you know, associates are able to do innovation projects and have that credited towards, you know, their, their annual billing hour requirements. So without that, and that's really been a game changer because, you know, without that there will always be the pressure available right. time and sure. you know and I mean that's a whole other topic of the business model of the, <laughs> and why why the legal industry is resistant to change but you know it's key because you know otherwise you're perpetually trying to implement a change in crisis mode or under very strict time pressure and it's just never going to set it up for the same kind of success as when there's sort of this breathing room and uh, you know I I, I think it's I really hope that that becomes more standard in the industry, because I think especially allowing attorneys who have more of a facility and more of an inclination, you know, with this kind of these generational shifts, not to overgeneralize, but towards kind of comfort and familiarity with, you know, leveraging technology to make certain parts of their lives easier, allowing that breathing room and that kind of space for them to get in there and get their hands dirty in a hypothetical situation rather than a real high stakes client situation is really another key component there.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head, right? I think in order to be able to empower people to bring about those change in a law firm environment, really one of two things have to change. Either you have to change the business model. And as you said, that's a topic for another conversation for sure. (laughs) Or you have to really allow people to be able to work within the business model. So they're not feeling the constant pressure of billing, billing their time and, or actually give them the freedom to say, actually do this, because it's going to ultimately help you and it's going to help the business and the firm and we'll credit you towards you know, your billable hour target or whatever it might be for the year. So I think that that's an amazing initiative. and I, I agree with you. I hope it sort of takes on board. And I mean, it's, again, none of these things are groundbreaking, you know, it's well founded that like Google has right. of, like spending 20% of your time on personal projects. And they'll often turn out to be amazing things. It doesn't have to be all the time because really it's kind of a private equity or VC type model. You need, you know, if you have able to do that across 10,000 people eventually for you guys, and you get one or two ideas that are successful, that will probably give such an immense return that it's definitely worth trying. And it has the same impact on a smaller firm or a mid-sized firm for sure. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, we've got to time. I mean, we, we talked about so much and there's so many more things we can discuss today for sure. But yeah, I think this has been a good starting point as any. I know you, you write quite a lot. I know you speak quite a lot and people can find out a lot of information and a lot of your, uh, your thoughts and ideas as well as those of Next Lab on the internet. But where's a good place if people wanted to get in touch with you or to find out more? Where's a good place to start?
1: Oh, Twitter and LinkedIn. Definitely. I we're we're pretty active on on both of those channels, both nextflow Labs and myself personally. I met at Markovich Maya on Twitter and same Maya Markovich on LinkedIn. Yeah. And I'm happy to happy to have conversations. I love when people reach out. In fact, that's how we found each other, isn't it? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah. We don't actually know each other. We were just introduced by your contact. <laughs> So, no, it's been wonderful talking to you. I'll link both your LinkedIn and Twitter on the blog post that goes out with this episode, as well as a link to Nextdoor Labs so people can find out more there. Thank you so
1: much, Maya. Wonderful. Wonderful conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ab. It's been an honor (laughs) to be with you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.